Good morning again. Can you hear me? Yes? Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Ken, for those kind words of introduction. And uh, I wanted to thank you and Pastor Steve for giving me this opportunity to share God's word this morning. It is a privilege that uh, I don't take lightly. Um, and thank you, John, for giving us that uh, update on your trip. Um, the first Sunday of every month, as you know, we take a few minutes to give an update from our many missionaries. If you can switch to the slide there, you can see a picture of all of our uh, missionaries um, in Thailand, India, Papua New Guinea, Honduras, U.S., and other places. And hopefully these updates have brought our missionaries closer to you, especially the last two years. They have not been able to travel to speak here in person, um, and hopefully that has helped out. And if you go to the next slide, you can see an image of all our missionaries. Um, and so this morning is going to be a little more than an update, so don't get nervous if I take more than 10 minutes, but I uh, promise to have you done within the hour. And um, this church, as many of you know, has invested for over 50 years in the work of missions um, over the last 10 years. I've been here now 18 years, and uh, over the last 10 years, being involved in the missions ministry, um, we have really sharpened uh, the, you know, the focus on training men to shepherd churches with an emphasis on partnering with national missionaries. For many years, this church sent out its own people, uh, but over the last 10 years, we started partnering with national uh, pastors and missionaries who are native to their own land. And we also have retired missionaries who, who we continue to support. If you look at the missions budget, you can see that. Um, but today we want to go a little deeper and remind ourselves why we invest in the work of missions, right? Why do missionaries go? Why do we send? Why do we share our needs from up here every month? Uh, we have gone on some short-term mission trips. Why do we go on these trips? And if you look at the larger picture of the last 2,000 years since uh, Christ gave the Great Commission, the work of missions has prevailed in spite of all of history and all of the happenings of history. So why has the work of missions prevailed? And this morning I have various texts, but I do want to start uh, reading in Psalm 96. It's a good place to start, and then we're going to work our way through some different texts. So Psalm 96, I'm going to read the first three verses here. <clears throat> Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. We pray you speak to our hearts. Give us uh, receptive hearts and clarity of mind to hear what you have to say today. And not just hear, but to take these words and to apply it to our lives. Uh, may we leave here with a greater desire to be involved in, in making your name known across the nations. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So to answer the question of why missions, we are going to first do a, go through a brief overview of the biblical mandate for missions, and then I have very three simple points, and you should have it in your outline. Uh, we're going to talk about the reason for missions, the responsibility for missions, and finally, the reward for missions. And to make it more personal, I'd like you to think about two questions. Ask yourselves two questions. Why should I care about missions? And what is my responsibility? And I hope to answer those questions today. But before we look at the why of missions, it's important to define the word missions. 
and John alluded to this as well. Um, and the biblical mandate for missions comes from Christ himself. In, in Matthew 28, a passage we're all familiar with, verses 19 and 20, contains what is called the Great Commission. You, you're familiar with these words. Christ, before he ascended into heaven, said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am always with you to the very end of the age. And, you know, people's last words are sometimes of great importance, and Christ gave these words, this command to his apostles before he ascended into heaven. And the Great Commission, as you know, uh, essentially outlines what Christ expects his followers to do until his return. So, in other words, the Great Commission instructs us, his followers, to number one, go into all the world, make disciples while we are going throughout the world, starting locally and expanding until the ends of the earth. And in practice, it involves going or sending to share the gospel, starting a church if there is none, then baptizing the new believers, and then appointing faithful men to lead the church, who in turn, for the rest of their lives, hopefully, uh, teach God's word. All other missions-related activities, short-term trips, um, sponsoring children like our church has done, handing out books and Bibles, building homes, providing food and medical help are secondary activities which are done in order to open the doors to discipleship or to aid in the process of discipleship. They are not the core tasks of missions. The primary task, again, is to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, continually teach. And so now that we have defined missions, I want to talk about the question of why missions, the reason for mission, uh, the missions. And the question we need to start is to really think about why is God committed to missions, right? And we're going to look at a few passages, and I'm going to start in Romans chapter 10. If you could turn to Romans chapter 10. Um, it's a familiar passage when it comes to missions. I've been to missions conferences where they often teach on this passage. I remember uh, Randy Nelson, one of our missionaries, when they were here a few years ago, he spoke on this, on this passage. And Romans chapter 10, we're going to pick up in verse 13, talks about a chain of events that must happen in order for a person to be saved, or a ladder, if you will, if you want to visualize it. So picking up in verse 13 of Romans 10, it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him if, in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have all not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed, and what has, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So in verse 16, 13, we see that salvation is the end result. God wants people to be saved. But if you work backwards, we see that salvation involves calling on the name of the Lord in repentance. Calling on the name of the Lord requires believing. Believing requires hearing. A person must hear the gospel. Hearing requires the good news to be preached. And this could be you know, public proclamation, preaching, or also personal evangelism. And in order for someone to preach or share the gospel, someone must be first be sent out to the people who need it. Someone has shared the gospel with you and me in order to, for you to believe. 
And if you read just this passage out of context, you could assume that sending out is the starting point. There's a lot of emphasis on sending, sending missionaries. But before a person is sent, there is a greater underlying motivation I wanted to get to today. And in verse 17, uh, we see the reference of the prophet Isaiah, who was one of the sent ones in the Old Testament. So his sending, Isaiah's sending, gives us a clue and a greater understanding for the, region, the reason for mission. So if you could turn to Isaiah 6, we will continue this chain or this ladder to get to the underlying motivation for missions. So in Isaiah 6, I'm going to read the first um, eight verses. <clears throat> Isaiah is given a vision of, at a time of great national mourning that King Uzziah had passed away. There was uncertainty and fear in the land. And, and this is what it says, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And so here in verse 8, we see the same verb, send, in the phrase, Here I am, send me, that we saw in Romans 10. But what causes Isaiah to step up to go is not, if you notice, the need of his people. Instead, Isaiah has an overwhelming experience of first, two things. First, the holiness of God. He sees God as perfect, but also his being distinct and separate. There is no one else. There is nothing in all of the universe that compares to God. His holiness is the sum total of all of who God is, some of all his perfections, all his attributes, uh, his holiness, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his self-existence, his immutability, his omnipresence, his love, his grace, his wisdom, his justice, all of his works make up the holiness of God or who God is. And second, Isaiah is changed when he sees the glory of God. And the glory of God is the display of his holiness, the display of who he is, his supreme greatness, a radiance or visible manifestation of his excellencies. So here we see as a result of seeing God's glory, Isaiah is lost. Some translations use the word undone, come apart. In our modern vernacular, we could use the word, you know, just being discombobulated or messed up by what he sees. And this overwhelming experience of the glory of God leads to Isaiah's confession. Now we are working our way down that ladder. It leads to his atonement or cleansing. He then commits to go, and finally he's commissioned. So God gives Isaiah a glimpse of his holiness and his glory, and this changes Isaiah, and this is what 
leads him to step up and say, here I am, send me. So the reason for missions is ultimately about the spread of the glory of God. To make it even more to the point, missions is the spread of the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan theologian, spent his lifetime making a case for the fact that the ultimate end of God and the end of all of history is the magnification of God's supreme glory. God's, God exists for the spread of his own glory, and God puts ultimate value on the supremacy of his own name and glory. So a person is moved to go on mission not primarily because of the need of the people, while that is important, but when he or she sees God for who he is and, and all his glory. And missions then becomes about wanting others who have not seen this glory to understand and see this glory. To make it personal, missions is about you seeing God's glory and then wanting others who have not seen this glory to see the same glory. Sending missionaries, going into the field, uh, teaching, preaching, sending Bibles are all tasks which are essential and vital as we saw in Romans 10. But all of these tasks are undergirded by the primary motivation of God's glory. They are the means, the beginning and the end is the glory of God and the true worship of God. And I hope you are following, following with me. And the priority God places on the spread of his own glory and his own name is seen throughout scripture. The, the, the scripture we read from Psalm 96, the first three verses, it's a call to worship, a command to declare his glory. We are called to sing. We are called to proclaim the good news every day and declare his glory among all nations and wonders among all peoples. Habakkuk 2.14 is a declaration of a time that will assuredly come to pass. It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Psalm 46.10, it's a familiar verse. Be still and know that I am God. Most people just reference that one phrase. You'll see it on posters, on pictures, but the rest of that verse is what makes the picture complete. Be still and know that I am God. Why? I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God's name and God's renown will be most definitely exalted. No man, no nation, no leader can stand in God's way. And this, this Psalm, Psalm 46, you know, though it, 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 it pictures this still picture of be still and know that I am God, it actually talks about God melting the earth, breaking the bows, uh, shattering spears, ending wars. It is a warning to all the nations that, and to us, his people, an assurance that ultimately he will be exalted among the nations. And finally, Malachi 1.11, it says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Every place incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So scripture makes it clear from beginning to end that God's ultimate goal and what he values the most is the supremacy of his own name and his own glory. And you don't have to look far in today's world to see that God's name and Christ's name is not acknowledged among the nations. In every place, incense, praise is being offered to all kinds of false deities, beliefs, philosophies, and lifestyles. 
And throughout history, and even more so today, God, man is glorifying in his own name, glorifying his own accomplishments, his own creativity, his own sin, his own foolishness, his own name, and all of these are forms of idolatry. And God's plan is to change this through missions. So how has God revealed his glory, you might be asking. In what ways does God continue to reveal his glory? Uh, we don't have time today to look at an exhaustive list. This is a whole study by itself. But here are some ways God has revealed his glory. Number one, God has revealed his way, glory in creation. We see God's creation. It's, it's, a, it's a display of his glory. What is called general revelation. No one is without account because of it. Psalm 19, as Psalm 19 says, Heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands, day to day pour forth speech, night to night reveal knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In other words, all of creation is shouting, all of creation is speaking, is declaring, is calling attention to a God who is a creator. It is not by chance it is that the, all of this world has come together. Another way God has revealed his glory is in the person of Christ, the very person of Christ reveals the glory of God. If you turn to Hebrews 1.3, it says, He, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature, His nature. And He, that is Christ, upholds the universe by the work, word of His power. And it's easy to think, you know, if I, if I saw what Isaiah saw in that amazing vision, I would raise my hand to go. But remember, we have had the privilege that Isaiah did not have of having seen and experienced what Christ has done for us. Christ, whose radiance and the visible display of the glory of God and his own exact imprint of his nature. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God because he took on bodily form and displayed God's glory on this earth while he was here for his short life. The glory of God was seen in his miracles. The glory of God was seen in his teachings. The glory of God was seen in his wisdom, his love, his sinless and perfect life, his death on the cross, and his sacrifice in our place, and finally, in the bodily resurrection. God is glorified when sinners repent, Luke 15, 7. God is glorified when we obey him and pursue holiness, 2 Peter chapter 1. God is glorified when we pursue good works, which God prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2, 10. God is glorified when believers show love to one another, as you all show to one another. God is glorified when we give him worship and praise, even here this morning in our singing, in our prayer, in communion, in giving, in, in serving, in preaching. God is glorified in all of these things. In fact, Colossians 3.17 commands us to do all things, all things to the glory of God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And last but not least, in the context of missions, God is glorified when we are zealous for his name to be known among the nations because, as we said, that is the very heart of God. Jonathan Edwards said this, and I think this quote is in your outline. God's purpose for my life was that I have a passion for God's glory and that I have a passion for my joy in that glory and that these two are one passion. 
In other words, Edwards is saying his joy, his greatest joy, is his passion for God's glory, and that needs to be our passion as well. So the reason for missions is the spread of God's glory, and we send as a church in order men and women hear the gospel and are saved, but our underlying motivation is that God's name is glorified among all peoples. So secondly, let's move on to the responsibility of missions. And the task of missions is significant. There are, if you read and, you know, uh, you read about all these unreached people groups and you read some of the statistics or you just see the state of the church globally, the task is daunting and can be overwhelming. But thankfully, the responsibility of missions and the success of missions is first God's and then ours. And since God's purpose is to spread his own name and his glory, we are assured that the success of missions is his and not ours. Paul Washer said this, Men can disobey the call of God, but God will get the work done. The plan of the Great Commission, or the work of the Great Commission, does not depend on any man or group of men on the face of the earth. It is not our problem to see it done. God will see it done. It is our privilege to participate, and you have been called to participate in the Great Commission. If you do, you will experience great joy. If you do not, you will be the one who loses. But God will raise up a people to do it. His work is his work, and he will see to it. So that should tell us that, you know, you and I, we don't have to stress about the success of missions. I mean, some of you have asked me, oh, you're moving. Who's going to take on the role of the missions coordinator? Doesn't matter. God will continue his work, and he will see this work get done because God has taken responsibility for the outcome. In John chapter 10, um, we see that Jesus saying, uh, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. And God's plan was that his sheep include people beyond the fold of Israel. And in John chapter 4, we know this, this uh, passage where Jesus goes on this, you could call it a mission trip, his first trip outside his local area. He goes on a divine appointment to reach a woman by the well of an unreached people group, and due to this one divine appointment at the well, a woman, a Samaritan woman at that, gets saved, and through her we see others in their community get saved. And so this is the confidence that we can have in the work of missions, is this declaration that Christ has said there are sheep who will listen to his voice. Those who will listen and hear will do so not because of what we do in our sending or missionaries do in their preaching, but because Christ has said they will listen to his voice and that should remove the pressure from us. So then what is our responsibility? Do we just sit back and you know, wait for God to do what he will do and have nothing to say? No, we need to go back to the Great Commission. It's very simple, Matthew 28. We have to go, we have to preach or send. We have to make disciples baptize, teach them to obey. I once heard someone say this, there are two groups when it comes to missions. You are either a missionary in a broad sense, you either send or you go, or you are the mission field. You are either the saved or the unsaved. There is no third group, right? Uh, another way to think about it, Piper once said, when it comes to missions, there are three types of people. Those who go, those who send, and they're disobedient. So those are your options. You get to go, you get to send, or you get to disobey. Uh, William Carey, the father of modern-day missions in the English-speaking world, 
Um, he went to India and he spent 40, 40 years in the field. It took him ages to see the first convert. And as a younger man in 1792, he published a book with a rather complicated title. The title says, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversions of the Heathens. He could have just called it, Why We Need to Go. Um, and the book, though, had a simple goal. Carey wanted to respond to hyper-Calvinists who were against taking the gospel to the nations. And their viewpoint was, you know, God is going to save who he's going to save. William Carey, you don't need to go. He will do his work. And so his book began by answering one question. Does the Great Commission still apply to the church more than 1,700 years later? Carey concluded, he said this, Surely it is worthwhile to lay ourselves out with all our might in promoting the cause and kingdom of Christ. And after much convincing, over time, William Carey was able to convince the English Missionary Society to send him and other missionaries to India. And a fellow pastor said this about, about going to India. He said, we saw a gold mine in India, gold mine, but it was a deep well, a deep well as deep as the center of the earth. Who is going to venture to explore it? And Carey famously said these words, I will go down if you will hold the rope. I will go down if you will hold the rope. So some are called down to go down into the well, our missionaries. Others are called to hold the ropes for our missionaries. Every believer is under the command of the Great Commission. And that is our responsibilities. You are either called to go down the well or you are called to hold the rope for someone else who has already gone down the well. And if you and I are sitting here this morning, we are not in the well. We are here holding, hopefully, the rope for those who are not in the well. And so here are some practical ways you can hold the, hold the rope for those in the well, for our missionaries that you see up here, for other missionaries around the world. Pray for those in the well. Communicate with those in the well. Encourage those in the well. You know, do you keep in touch with those in the well? Giving, give to those in the well. Give to send them down the well. Give sacrificially and regularly so that they can carry out the task without worrying about the needs of their ministry. Do you, do you give to support those in the well? One of the amazing insights I've had as being part of the missions ministry is that here as a body, you all give generously towards the work of missions. And we even have people who have moved from this area to other parts of the U.S., they continue to give to the work of missions of this church because they know as a church we take good care of our missionaries. What a blessing. You could go on a short-term trip down the well. We haven't had a chance to go on a trip for years, but we've had a few trips you know, going out and blessing our missionaries and being blessed in return. And holding the rope means you may not be able to do other things with your time, your resources, your energy, and there is a cost to holding the rope for someone down the well, just as there is a cost for them to go down the well. What is it costing you? And maybe some of you younger people here today are looking at your life, and maybe God will want you to go down the well. What a greater investment to make with your life than the spread of God's glory. So we all have a responsibility to spread God's glory among the nations. God will do his work. We have our part to do our work, and we need to be faithful to that task. And so finally, I want to close with, why do we do this? Why should we invest? We've talked about the why, but what is in it for us, right? Maybe you're wondering about that. 
The cost of going down the well or holding the rope for others is to be counted for sure, but a reward is assured and is greater than any cost. In Matthew chapter 19, Peter in verse 27 asked Christ, he said, Peter said, we have left everything to follow you, what then will there be for us? And in verse 28, Jesus said to them, his disciples, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all great things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So those who have left earthly possessions, those who have left positions, those who have left the glory of their own name, uh, many missionaries have given, given, given much of this up, will receive a hundred times as much. And I, I don't know exactly what the hundred times means, but Christ himself, the reward is great. And that compared to the sacrifices our missionaries make or those of us who send make, the reward is a hundredfold. And that should be good enough for us. But the greater reward must be that the work of the missions is contributing to another vision, and a vision that we see in Revelation chapter 7. God has already declared what the end outcome of the Great Commission will be, and it is the Great Commission I was thinking not only because of the greatness of the task, but because it leads to a great gathering of people. So if you turn to Revelation 7 in verse 9, Revelation 7, verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be our God forever. Amen. So our greatest reward, brothers and sisters, is seeing the fulfillment of God's desire one day that his glory is declared by people from all nations. One day, the name of Christ and the name of our God will be exalted before this great gathering. And Philippians 2, 9 says, Therefore God has exalted him, that is Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, missions will be no more. Why? Because the mission of making the name of Christ known and acknowledged, as we read in these verses, will have been completed. Some as Savior will bow their knee, and sadly, some as judge. 
So as we look at our missions ministry here as a church and as we give, as we send, as we support, as we give updates, just remember this. One day in that great gathering that we just read, there will be before God's throne people from those tribes in Papua New Guinea that the kennels have so faithfully ministered to all these years. People from India and Burma, that Pastor Theo, Pastor Ami, his brother, some of the pastors we support in NLC in India have preached to and faithfully taught. People from Thailand, from the dark places that the Nelsons have ministered for 40 plus years. People now from South and Central America through MEDA, our partnership with MEDA. These two young men, Josue from um, Peru, and um, Enrique from Colombia. I had to think there for a while. All of these missionaries of ours, one day, we are going to see people before the throne of God because of the work that they have been able to do with our support. And so many other people from people groups you and I will ne never directly see here in our earthly lives. And our greatest reward will be seeing these souls standing before the throne one day, all worshiping God the way they were intended originally. And on that day, missions will be no more, but true worship will be forever, and the name of Christ will be great among the nations. So in closing, remember, missions exist for the spread of God's glory. All of our tasks of sending, of going, of sending Bibles, doing short-term missions trips, are all undergirded by the motivation of the spread of God's glory. Second, our reward is assured, knowing people from, from every tongue and nation and tribe will one day worship God and that God will get the glory he deserves. And finally, while the task is, is, might seem daunting, God has, God has assured the outcome of missions. You and I need to, need to take the responsibility to simply obey the Great Commission all of us need to be involved in the work of missions, not just those in the missions ministry. You are either called down to go down the well, like William Carey said, or to hold the rope for others who have gone down. There is no third option. Which one will it be? Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word. We pray that we would be daily reminded, Lord, of your desire to See your name, the name of Christ, be declared and be made great among the nations. Um, Lord, the world does not give you the glory you deserve. Even in the scripture that Kai read this morning, we see all of these behaviors which are opposite to giving glory to God. And Lord, this is why you left us, your disciples, on this earth to point others to your glory which they have not seen. And Lord, those of us who have seen and experienced the glory of Christ, thank you for sending someone to us, a missionary, a Sunday school teacher, a parent, a pastor, a friend, a relative, so that we would hear the gospel and understand your glory. And we were all lost in sin, Lord, until we heard this good news that Christ came to earth to live a sinless life, to die in our place, a life that we could never live and Lord, may our own life be a testimony to your saving grace. And Lord, if there is someone here today who has not yet turned to Christ and seen his glory, I pray that today will be the day 
they will turn from their sins and call out to you for salvation and turn to Christ. And Lord, we lift up all of our missionaries. It's been a privilege even for me to give these monthly updates and keep in touch with our many missionaries. We pray for them, both the retired missionaries and those in the field, the Kennels, the Nelsons, Pastor Theo, Pastor Ami in India, the pastors over at New Life Center in India, Beth Rainey, uh, the seminary in Honduras, the two young men we have invested in, Enrique and Josue. Uh, Lord, that you would use all of these missionaries to spread your name among so many diverse people groups all over the world. Uh, we could never, Lord, on our own reach these peoples, but they can. And we just thank you for the privilege you've given us and the responsibility to partner with them. And I pray we would do this faithfully. We would remain faithful to the task that you have given us. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege and responsibility of holding the rope for our missionaries. They have gone down the, the well, sometimes at great cost to their own life, their own families. And we pray that uh, we would do our part to support them through our prayers, through our giving, through our communication. I pray that you would continue to direct and lead the missions ministry here and around the world. It will continue to be a blessing to many. All of this we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you.